University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. This is Aspect Radio. I'm Corey Kraft. And I'm Ben Flanagan. Today we take a look at the Oscar nominations. Our snubs and predictions are on the way. But first, grab your map, a water bottle, and a dinky little pocket knife and head into the middle of nowhere without telling a single soul and strap in for Danny Boyle's 127 Hours. Good morning, everyone! It is 7 o'clock here in Canyonland, USA. Hey, Aaron. Mom still has not heard from you. Will you just call her, please? I'll talk to you soon. And this morning, on the boulder, we have a very special guest, Aaron Ralston! Oh my gosh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Hey! I'm a guide. What do you say? <laughs> See, I'm something of a big and hard hero. Oh, you have to remember that everything will be okay. I remember about the movie. It's been, it's been a little while since I've seen it. And then you get 
a really special movie, I think. I totally agree with you. I saw this late after we made our top ten list of the year, and this definitely earned a late spot on that. It's fantastic, and like you said, we have this Danny Boyle kineticism, and I really think that Boyle just continues to find his voice as a director. He keeps getting better and better to me, even though he was making great films at the earliest part of his career. It's just nice to see him span that in so many different ways now, and with 127 hours, I think he might have his greatest challenge as a filmmaker, to where you have this one location and one character, and you have to win an audience over with that kind of content. It reminded me, like you said, of Buried. I haven't seen Devil yet, but it also kind of reminded me of Rope, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, where we're going to be spending all of our time in one place. And of course, in Rope, it was more of a play atmosphere, where we have multiple characters all sort of talking about one thing in mind, and uh, you had a lot of dialogue here, you're with one guy, and yet you do get those flashbacks here and there, but that could have been played hokey, I think, and you would have seen Aaron Ralston finding this inspiration to do what he did. He either has to make a decision, do I have something to go back to, or do I have something to fight for, or yeah, do I have something to fight for, or is it even worth it, should I just stay here? And of course, we, we see which direction he goes. And like I said, that could have been played hokey, but it's not. We see that Aaron Ralston is a flawed individual. We see that the people he surrounds himself with are also flawed people. So it's not necessarily something that you would think immediately this is worth fighting for. But to him, he might feel like he has unfinished business as a human being, and he's not quite ready to make peace with himself and with the others that he'd be leaving at that point. But he does have this will to live. This is somebody who, like we said, is an adrenaline junkie. This is someone who, he's not put down easily. And when he's presented this kind of challenge, it just seems like something that Aaron Ralston would embrace and would want to find himself out of. And James Franco is outstanding in this. I think this is probably his best performance to date. And the fact that we have to spend literally every single minute of this movie with him. Again, we talk about challenges for the filmmakers. That's a big one for an actor. And I heard someone say in a review once, you either have to love this guy or hate this guy. There's nothing in between because you're going to be spending every single moment with him. And I think James Franco is incredibly appealing. I was one of the, guys, I was one of the people that loved him. And I embraced him and I embraced Ralston's story. Well, it's, it's kind of a, a hard thing to pull off, too, for Franco, not only because he's on screen, but because there are so many aspects of Aaron Ralston's personality that are kind of irritating or, you know, dumb. Uh, the fact that he got himself in this situation to begin with, um, <clears throat> when, without spoiling too much, there are several uh, you know steps you could have taken prior to leaving on a trip to make this avoidable. Yeah, I mean that's it's kind of hard to to keep the audience's sympathy with somebody who they think too often. I, I, I find that audiences are like, well, if you had just done this one incredibly simple thing, you know, then you wouldn't be in that situation, and that sort of turns audiences against some of your dumber protagonists, I guess. But, but that doesn't really happen in 127 hours, perhaps, because the filmmakers don't let him off the hook either. Mm-hmm. Uh, they sort of hang him out to dry for making the same mistakes, and he, he sort of kicks himself to you. But Franco's performance is incredibly appealing. It does keep you with him the whole time because of this, I guess, opening 15 to 20 minute scene pretty boulder where he's just sort of bouncing off the walls and, and uh, running through the wilderness, wily coyote mm-hmm. style. Uh, and runs into the, those, those two girls who were featured pretty prominently in the marketing campaign. And that's Amber Tamlin and Kate Mara? Yeah. Is that right? I thought they were great. They were great. I thought the interplay between Franco and those girls were great, and that whole sequence where he is sort of serving as an amateur guide around the Utah canyons, I think that that is really what helps win the audience over in terms of when they're going to be able to root, whether or not they're going to be able to root for Aaron Ralston for the rest of the movie, 
said, he's kind of a cartoon character come to life. But those moments are so exciting and so appealing that I found myself saying, you know what, this guy would be a lot of fun to hang out with. I'd want him to take me around because he's showing them a good time. And like you said, people could say, well, if he had done this, he wouldn't be in the situation. And that may be true. He could have told someone he was there. He could have brought someone with him, but he didn't. And this is the situation he finds himself in. It's a tough position, obviously. And like we said, it's impossible in many ways. But he has to improvise. And that's who Aaron Ralston is. He's a guy who's able to improvise. And that's something that I think James Franco is incredibly good at. I think we have a, a really interesting screenplay here by Simon Beaufoy and the Danny Boyle co-write. The yes, he did. Again, this is a tough screenplay to write. It's, it's a tough one to translate. It's based on Ralston's book, I believe, which is called between a rock and a hard place, or stuck between a rock and a hard place, something like that. But I just found it incredibly entertaining, even though we're spending all this time in one place. The movie could have relied on flashbacks throughout the entire thing, but it doesn't. And they're not necessarily flashbacks. They're more like hallucinations throughout the entire thing. Because sometimes we see Ralston's family appear in the canyon with him. They're kind of watching him, talking to him, that kind of thing. And we even see Scooby-Doo pop up. Uh, once or twice uh, after he, Scooby-Doo has been mentioned to him by those girls who are going to a party later. But I, I thought it was great. It looks incredible, especially for the first 20 minutes or so when you're just kind of cruising the canyons with his character and those girls, especially, good Lord, when they go down into the little crevice where there's the, the spring or the water, wherever they're swimming. It's unbelievable photography, and you just get that pure Danny Boyle style of filmmaking, and it's fantastic. You know, Danny Boyle is a filmmaker who I've become fan of a lot of his early work, but I, I think it's safe to say he's fulfilling his promise as a filmmaker. Now, I, I, I mean, with Slumdog Millionaire, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture, which is just a likable movie, and certainly well shot, and now with 127 Hours, which brings him back to Oscar contention, uh, though it's admittedly unlikely to win, and, uh, I, you know, I don't know, I, so often with his films, I find that um, they sort of take a turn near the end to I don't know, something that I don't really enjoy as much as, as what I've been seeing for the first, I don't know, two-thirds. That sort of happens with, with 28 Days Later. It happens with a lot of people with Sunshine, but I kind of like Sunshine. With 127 Hours, though, I, I think the ending of the movie is its strongest part because it has this earned goodwill and this really cathartic, you know, these really cathartic moments in the climax. I mean, for obvious reasons, but, but you know, what could have been played for I don't know, ridiculous, sappy nonsense. Uh, I mean, it's actually earned. And, and, you know, Danny Boyle uses a Sticky Rose song at the end of the, the climax. And I, I, that's sort of, I mean, this is as nitpicky as you can get, but that's sort of a, a, a cliche way of evoking emotional response just because Sticky Rose's music is so bombastic and so emotional in itself. But this is one of the few times in recent memory where I think that's earned. And, and the movie just it's, just, it's just amazing how... It plays a lot of cards that could be considered sappy at the ending of the movie and, and basically just succeeds with them all. You might not even need that song because I think that the time that you've spent with him and the specific situation that you're in together at this point, whatever happens, whatever whatever closure you get is going to be emotional enough for the audience. Well, yeah, and you also, at the climax, I forgot, get this, this song by Dido, mm-hmm. which is not nominated for an Oscar, I think, for Best Original Song, which, which might have been a little overkill, uh, considering where it comes. But yeah, I, I agree with you. You, you know, sort of amp it up, but you know, it didn't really bother me no, that much. Not me, because 
I was invested. I, I was a mess. There have been so many films in 2010 that have really sort of prompted these visceral reactions, these emotional reactions from me. You've got something like Toy Story 3. You've got something like Inception, something like Shutter Island. And they're just movies that are emotional gut punches. And I think that 127 Hours might be, along with Toy Story 3, the king of all of those from 2010. I just think that it's a shame that this movie hasn't made it to Tuscaloosa yet, or it didn't go nationwide in theaters everywhere. It got a strong push here after it got six Oscar nominations. But it's just a shame because this is a crowd pleaser, man. It really is. And I think that if people see this, they're going to tell people about it. They're going to tell their friends about it and say, look, this movie's awesome. And yes, it is very hard to watch during one particular sequence that it seems everybody knows about at this point. I'm not going to lie, that's a tough scene to watch. Yeah, I, I, that, that's what I was about to ask you about. Does that scene, do you think that scene cuts into, I guess, the crowd pleaser? Well played. No, thank God. I didn't realize what I was doing. Do you think that that affects its status as a crowd pleasing film, you know, or? Maybe the notoriety of that scene sort of affected Fox Searchlight's decision to, to platform it wider. I mean, I, that's the only explanation I have to you because it's not like it's an inaccessible movie by any stretch. No, it's not. No, I think that that scene actually is what's going to prompt people to tell others, you've got to see this movie. And, and look, we can, I think we can say this at this point. This is a gruesome scene. It definitely is. And it's a gruesome situation when you really break it down. But I think the stakes are so high that the payoff for people is going to be so strong that they're going to be willing to sit through it and recommend it. And plus, like, the reason I, I've been sort of championing this to other people is because, look, if this guy went through it for real, we can go through it for 88 minutes. You know, I didn't even think the offending scene was that bad or was. Maybe I'm desensitized by years of Saw movies, but right, it's not... I mean, it's not like the goriest thing I've seen. It might be it's pretty bad. bad. It's, it's bad for the, it's, for the, the people who don't get to see Saw movies. Yeah, the, re- the regular folks right. out there. Right. And, and it might be more affecting just because of the emotional connection you've developed mm-hmm. with the character throughout the whole movie. I mean, you don't want to see that. I mean, it's just awful. But at the same time, you're filled with such elation when he finally does free himself with his circumstances. Yes, it really is. It, it, it does, so to speak. Nice. Yeah. Nice Toy Story 3, 
Inception, The Fighter, True Grit, The Kids Are All Right, Black Swan, and Winter's Bone. All of the seasons, award seasons, familiar faces are in the race, including Natalie Portman, Colin Firth, Christian Bale, Melissa Leo, and others who made strong showings at the precursors. But then, why don't we first focus on the snubs, and I can go ahead and anticipate what snubs are going to be the most glaring at, and particularly for, for you, from your second favorite movie of the year, and the Best Picture nominee, Christopher Nolan, the director of Inception, does not seem to have made as strong of an impression on the Academy for his work in that movie as it did on virtually everybody else, nor did the editor of Inception, Lee Smith. So let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, I know that we already have pretty extensively, but, uh, you know, not on this show. Mm-hmm. So what's up with that, I guess? I don't know. Um, I think the most glaring snub, though, is Lee Smith's, because Inception entered the season as a likely favorite to win Best Editing this year at the Oscars. It was probably going to come down to it and the social network, you would imagine. And in these situations, I don't understand where it gets left out. If people think that others are going to vote for it and they just don't vote for it, or I'm not sure what happens. I don't know if Warner Brothers just didn't mount a strong enough campaign here for Inception for Lee Smith. And I guess, like you said, most glaringly in the public's perception in Christopher Nolan, and it makes me wonder, does the Academy have an agenda against Christopher Nolan? I've heard some people with these conspiracy theories that suggest people don't like Christopher Nolan because he's in a position now where he can do whatever he wants in Hollywood. You know, I wonder if it's that complicated. I I also heard, you know, and and these are pretty common, but since the movie came out, you know, you get reports of Academy members saying things like, I didn't understand that. You know, I, I have no idea what happened in that movie. So whereas they may respect it, uh, and like the younger vote might be enough to get it in the best picture race, um, you know, it makes me wonder whether like they fault Christopher Nolan or or the editor, I suppose, for not keeping it clear enough or whatever. Uh, for I mean, I, you know, that movie is complicated, but it's not unclear. Mm-hmm. And apparently, they respect it enough to give it a best picture nomination and a nomination for for Christopher Nolan's screenplay. Uh, so, so who knows? I mean, I, I don't know if it's as, as complicated as, as sort of, uh, I guess, a vengeful strike back at his artistic freedom now, but um, I mean, it's just baffling. It is baffling, and we again, like you said, we talked about this, but is there a better edited film than Inception this year, last year? Was there a better directed film than Inception last year? And I don't think that's just from our perspectives necessarily. I think that that's a pretty universally agreed upon notion. Yeah, the one film that I would put up there as being at least as well edited as Inception, if not slightly better, is just it's Scott Pilgrim versus the world just because of how complicated that movie really is from a technical standpoint, uh, which was also, I mean, of course, that never had a chance. Um, I agree, though. But, but yeah, I, I mean, the Inception snub in editing is, is like you said, I, I would have picked Lee Smith to walk away with it. Uh, and I had since July, so his absence in the category is, is baffling. But at least that's one that the social network can take away, I guess. Well, we talk about, we're going to get into predictions later, but since we're talking about Nolan right now, it seems that the screenplay Oscars have kind of turned into the honorable mention, thanks for playing, wins of the Academy. And I wonder now if, upon his getting the snub, I wonder if the Academy will say, okay, well, we can pay our tribute to Nolan at this point by voting for his screenplay to win, even though I think that it's kind of fallen behind in the pack where the King's Speech and the Kids Are All Right are actually ahead of it in the pecking order for screenplay. But I wonder 
terms of snubs. I, just a few more that I'll mention here. I mean, people have sort of come out and started to say that Ryan Gosling is a big snub for his performance in Blue Valentine. And my question is, well, where were you when you saw Blue Valentine and you were able to vote and react to that? I mean, it's a great performance, but at this point it's like too a little too late, don't you think? That movie just got kind of too late of a release. Michelle Williams, who was actually nominated for Blue Valentine, had the luxury of uh, a category that had four firm locks and then one spot completely up in the air. So I imagine she rallied enough support to get in there, but with, with the Best Actor category, I mean, again, you had four firm lots and one one spot that I thought was going to go to Robert Duvall, but ended up going to Javier Bardem because he did actually have a, sort of a last-minute rally to get his name on the ballot. Julia Roberts basically guilt-tripped voters into... Yeah, among other people. It's not, yeah. Julia Roberts might be the most high-profile person, mm-hmm. but there, he had... I mean, Javier Bardem had an, a surprising amount of support from his fellow actors to get in that category. Um, and, and Ryan Gosling, as great as he is, just didn't... I mean, didn't have that. Yeah, if I'm talking about any more snubs here, from a personal standpoint, one of my favorite film of the year... Social Network, I'm a little surprised that nobody ended up with a Supporting Actor nomination, uh, or even Supporting Actress. Of course, I don't think that, that was necessarily realistic for Remar to get one, so I won't consider it a snub, but I guess the attitude that they should have is, well, if, if it only had to be one of us that got nominated, let's be glad that none of us did, and let Jesse Eisenberg sort of represent the whole of the cast. So it's nice to see him somebody his age especially, and for that performance, get a nomination. Yeah, that's kind of a strong category to you, supporting actor, it usually is, but I kind of saw, I kind of expected Andrew Garfield to get in there uh, over John Hawks. I'm, I'm glad that that didn't happen ultimately, because I think John Hawks is, is terrific, but yeah, I, I, I'm a little surprised to you, but like you said, there, there are just so many options that almost certainly they, they canceled one another out. Yeah, I was like, I guess it, if it was going to be anybody, it was going to be Andrew Garfield. And right now, yeah, here, here's his name. I mean, at this point, I, I, I was really behind Army Hammer last week or when we were talking about our favorite performances from it, but I've gone back and watched the movie a couple of times, and I think that you have a show-stopping role, and I've mentioned this before, it was in my favorite scene of the year, from Douglas Urbanski as Larry Summers, the president of Harvard, and he just absolutely kills it. And I don't know, you have these these nominees and winners in the past who have turned in these very, very minor, these or not necessarily minor, but these short performances where they're only in the film for as, as little as three minutes, I think, or eight minutes. And then you have this scene that is just completely dialogue-driven and it's something that requires someone to, like I said, absolutely kill it like Urbanski did and someone who's not a professional actor necessarily. Apparently, he, he, this guy is like a conservative talk show host and an analyst, and he fills in for Rush Limbaugh sometimes when he's out. Yeah, that's just, this is according to the DVD commentary. So just to see this guy step in and just rip apart Army Hammer, just take them to task, was just impressive to me. Again, it, it's not realistic to consider it a snub, but in my mind it is. <laughs> so any more from you? I'm looking through the categories. I mean, the big one in technical side is, is no Tron legacy for visual effects, but you do have... I don't know, Clint Eastwood's year after, which got in on the strength of the opening sequence. And uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, which is, for my money, probably the least visual effects reliant of any of the movies. 
so far. I mean, did you get that sense to you? I mean, it's mostly just like shots of vistas and like the woods. I haven't seen it yet. Really? No, I, I skipped it this time. I don't know why, because the last one was so strong. You know, a lot of people did skip it. I, I don't think uh, our friend Phil saw it either. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think it, people might be burned out on Harry Potter at this well, point. Well, it, it could be, but there's only one left. So well, it's only, you know, keep it up here. <laughs> this film had to be one of the eligible films that got snubbed had to be nominated between, and I know this is one of your favorites, that Tron or Scott Pilgrim had to be nominated for Best Special Effects. If you're looking at this from an objective voting standpoint, which would you have picked? Can I take out, like, Hereafter and Iron Man and put them both in? <laughs> I mean, honestly. Well, I mean, I, I think I think that the Harry Potter movie has fine special effects when there are special effects. Uh, but I don't, I don't think that Hereafter or Iron Man 2 really deserve to be in the category over Tron and Scott Pilgrim. And I don't really understand. I, I don't know if it didn't become eligible at a certain point. But again, I hate to keep going back to this film, but the special effects in the social network are yeah, groundbreaking. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. So I don't really understand where, where that absence or the reason for that absence. But in terms of visual effects, the Hereafter nomination surprises me because I didn't even see that movie, but I saw the trailer where there were effects featured. And there's this shot of a burning building, and there's this CGI smoke that's just absolutely awful. Yeah, I mean, the scene for which it was nominated for, the, it's a scene with a tsunami that mm-hmm. opens the film. Uh, and it is admittedly harrowing, and it's probably the best part of the movie, which is a movie that I hated just profoundly. Uh, but, <clears throat> but didn't Deep Impact sort of pave the way for Yeah, you know, it's like, it's good, but we've seen it before. You know, I, I wonder if this is just a response to uh, old guard member Clint Eastwood dipping his toes into big budget CG filmmaking. You know, mm-hmm. like, that's what it seems like to me because it's not any more impressive than, uh, well, certainly not more impressive than the work in Tron, in my opinion. I, I mean, that's the only reason to see Tron. You know, like, why the hell else would you even see that movie? So if we're talking about Nolan as a snub here and we're looking at the directing category, we see these five names, and they're five worthy names for sure, but if you could eliminate one from Nolan, who would it be? I think that the spoilers here ended up being the Coen brothers getting a nomination for True Grit, even though I think most people would say David O. Russell is the one who could go if anybody does. Man, this is, this is controversial, and I hate to begrudge him his moment of success because I love him as a filmmaker, but Darren Aronofsky... I mean, he's got to be there. He directed, you know, the hell out of Black Swan, but that movie, I just, you know, it doesn't do it for me. I don't know. I think that he's the shoe-in. Not to win, but I just mean to, for a nomination, he's... Uh, no, you're just, probably right. You're probably right. I mean, realistically, uh-huh. if if Nolan were in over any of these people, they would, he would be in over the Coen brothers. But like you said, he directed the hell out of that movie. Right. Do you feel the same way about Russell and The Fighter? Yeah, I do. Really? Yeah. I, I love The Fighter, and, and just to have... I mean, maybe this is just a sentimental, like, I'm so glad David O. Russell is back. It's mm-hmm. sort, of, sort of moment for me, because you know, there was a time not too long ago, two years ago, that it didn't look like he was ever going to be able to finish a film again. It was almost as if he had ruined his reputation. He's far too talented of a filmmaker to be put out in the wilderness like he has been, and, and, and for him to arrive so forcefully with The Fighter, uh, which is a movie I know you, you don't feel as strongly about as I do. Uh, I just barely missed my top ten. 
I mean, it, it's a gr- it's a really good movie, a really strong movie, and very well directed film. But here's my argument for Nolan and more so against David O. Russell. This film was in development for a long time, and of course, he ended up getting it made along with Mark Wahlberg. To his credit, it finally got done. But the groundwork was sort of made for him. They had this in mind for such a long time to where we could have gone in several different directions and all we had to do is choose one. And we got a lot of great performances in this film, particularly from Christian Bell, Melissa Leo, and you could argue from the rest of the entire cast. It's an ensemble piece in the highest order. But do you think that Christian Bell and Melissa Leo and everybody else would have given poorer performances under the direction of somebody else or under the direction of, say, another good director? I think Melissa Leo very well could have, because she, uh, you know, I, I, I love her when she's good, but she can be pretty inconsistent. Christian Bale, I don't know. I mean, Christian Bale always strikes me as the sort of guy who's going to do what he wants to do. Right. But, I don't know, I mean, David or Russell brings a lot to that movie. Another director could have made it with, uh, approached it like a basic sports movie and said, oh, all this, you know, weird humor stuff and all this stuff with the family, what is that? We don't need that. This is a boxing movie. You know, you, there, there are a lot of ways that this movie could have been, I don't know, less interesting than it is. And I think David O. Russell brings a lot of his personality to it. And, you know, maybe, okay, maybe it's not best director-worthy work, but, I mean, there's no question that The Fighter would be a lesser movie with a lesser filmmaker behind the, behind the lens. Right. I, I just, I guess my thinking is there are other directors who could have pulled that off. Okay. But who could, who else could have directed Inception other than Christopher Nolan? Well, okay, you're right about that. And, and actually, The Fighter was uh, intended originally for, da- for Darren Aronofsky. Right. And he left it to make The Wrestler and then Black Swan. But, I, you know, I don't know what The Fighter would have been like with Darren Aronofsky. He was not a filmmaker known for, I guess, portraying family dynamics. Or political situations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess he does portray family dynamics in, like, Requiem for a Dream, but I don't think that's really what you want to go for in, in The Fighter. So I don't know. I mean, it's a tough call. Yeah, it really is. You're right, that, though, that, like, Christopher Nolan should be on that list. I don't know who should he should be replacing, personally. I mean, though, again, I think vote by vote he would get in over the Coens, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. The Coens. Well, it's like I guess. Look, I mean, again, this is this is a hard list to pick from. Who who should be up and you know, and to make way for Nolan, I'd pick Russell. You'd pick Aronofsky. So tough one. But and I don't want to stand by that either. Well, you don't have to. Because I, I know I said that, but then I thought about it. And I was like, eh. well, it's just five really good. It really is good directors. Let's have ten directors. In oh, we'll have it next year after the Nolans. <laughs> right. Well, since we don't know whether we'll be back in time. To make predictions the week of the ceremony, let's go ahead and make some early picks, most of which probably will not change between now and February 27th when the Oscars broadcast. So let's go category by category in the major fields. Who do you think will win what has suddenly become this competitive best director race, which is probably now down to former frontrunner David, David Fincher and possible new favorite Tom Hooper? Oh, Tough call. If you're putting a gun in my head, I'm still going to go with Fincher. Um, but I don't know. We should, I'm not we as confident with that pick. We should note that Tom Hooper won the Director's Guild Award. The film, the King's Speech, won the Producer's Guild and uh, the Screen Actors Guild Awards. So it's sitting pretty. Do you recall the last time a Director's Guild win did not line up with the Oscar win for director? I think it was 2002. I think uh, Rob Marshall won the Director's Guild Award, and 
like to get one of the Oscar. Well, who knows? This is a tough one to call. I'm kind of with you. I think that Fincher is going to end up winning Best Director. Yeah. I really hope he does. But again, I mean, this is a situation, and you tweeted about this recently, where when SAG came and the PGA and the DGA, when they all awarded King's Speech with their top runners, a lot of people who formerly claimed to love the King's Speech and call it a great film had sort of begun lashing out at it because it had found this resurgence thanks, I would say, mostly in part to the campaigning of Harvey Weinstein, who's a pro at this, and he's finding his a guru again because it's been a little while since he's won a Best Picture race. But you sort of lashed out against those people saying, that's not cool that you're suddenly turning on this great movie just because it's starting to get recognized as such. I think the terminology I used was a little harsher. Well, I tried to clean it up a little bit. Clean it up for radio. Um, yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's ridiculous. It's like when the social network was dominant, and, you know, I guess that is, I don't know, the social network and Black Swan are sort of like the edgy film guy picks. But when those were sort of dominant movies, uh, people were like, oh, The King's Speech is such a nice movie, though. It's really good. You know, it's fun. I don't want this picture, of course, but, it, you know, it's a really fun movie. And now when it's the front runner, people are like, oh, yeah, oh, The King's Speech. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was okay, you know, but it's nothing special. You know, I, I don't really think you should win this picture when they're uh, previously just really into the movie. Well, I'm tempted to do that, too. Because, well, look, just for a split second, because I love The Social Network so much, I love uh, Inception as much as I do, even though Inception's not a realistic option now for Best Picture. But, you know, when when the King's Speech started winning all of these, and it it looked more like it's going to win Best Picture, sort of, I guess, steal it away from The Social Network, you have that split second of, I guess, anger, but then you realize, wait a second, none of this really matters, and the King's Speech happens to be a great film, so it's not really going to bother me. I mean, I, I prefer The Social Network, too. They're both great movies, and, you know, I, I, I wonder, I, I mean, it, it, I think it's clear what history at this point is going to look more favorably upon, and that's true grit <laughs> out of any of them. In your mind? Yeah, probably. Well, we'll see, but let's just kind of roll through our predictions here. This actor is obviously a foregone conclusion, as are probably all of the acting nominations at this point. Yeah, I think everybody who won uh, at the SAG Awards is going to take home an Oscar, Colin Firth, and Best actor, Christian Bale. I don't think there's anything short of a complete sweep by the King's Speech preventing him from getting an Oscar. Um, and Natalie Portman, though, word is that that Annette Benning is is sort of hitting all the right notes on the campaign trail. Uh, you know, sort of reminding people, hey, she's never won before. This is a great performance. It could happen, like. You know, I, I'm just saying, I don't think it's going to. I think that yeah. Natalie Portman's the winner for sure. But that could be the shocker, I guess, of the evening. It could be. It very well could be. Uh, and, and Natalie Portman's young. She's got plenty of opportunities to do this again. And that bidding seems to make a, you know, one movie per four years or something like that. So who knows? I mean, you know, that that's growing into a question mark, whereas a few weeks ago I would have called that a lock for Natalie Portman. Now I'm a little unsure. I still think it's growing with Natalie Portman. And so, supporting actress, you're, you're thinking that Melissa Leo is definitely going to win at this point. Yeah, but again, that's another one where where Haley Steinfeld, uh, a true Brit, could could take that. It well, could happen. You know, I just I don't know. The campaign has just been really out of whack. I would say, just in terms of which category they were campaigning for her uh, to to wind up in, and now at this point, it's like Melissa Leo has really cleaned up at these precursors. So, why should they even continue to spend money on a 
on a campaign for Haley Steinfeld. But I, you know, I made the prediction that if Steinfeld ended up in the supporting actress category, I think that she would win. So for now, I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to stick with the upset, even though that's probably likely not going to happen. So, but let's, we said directing, we think Fincher's going to end up with it. But let's go through screenplays real quick. The Social Network, it seems, is the biggest foregone conclusion of this entire season since October. We've sort of known that this was going to happen. Are we sticking with that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's pretty, pretty safe. Well, just to look at it, I just, I mean, those are great films and great screenplays. I just don't think that they carry the amount of, I guess, debate, or not necessarily debate, but conversation, I guess, people are having, or, or, or it doesn't, or those screenplays don't have the story behind them that the social networks did, and Aaron Sorkin is a figure that I think Hollywood is, even though he has lashed out against the Writers Guild before, and I think he ended up winning the Writers Guild, has that happened? I think it has. I don't know, he's nominated, I know that, maybe it's happening this weekend, but probably going to win that, but no. Aaron Sorkin, for sure. So, original screenplay, this is a toughie, but you think the King's Speech is going to walk away with it? Yeah, I think that's almost as guaranteed as, as Aaron Sorkin is at this point, to be honest. I, I, I think it's got it in the bag. And then we talk about these consolation prizes being the screenplay awards this year. Again, Inception is it's sort of hovering, but I think that Lisa Cholodinko could find some recognition by getting screenplay this year. And as we found out last year, screenplay is never a sure thing. Because it seemed that Jason Reitman was the guy that was going to win that for the longest time. He wasn't necessarily as much of a shoe in as Aaron Sorkin is this year, but he was right on that level. Yet Jeffrey Fletcher swooped in and won for Precious. Yeah, the, the thing is, I don't know that there is any one film nominated in adapted screenplay that people can rally behind so singularly mm-hmm. as they have been with the social network uh, that would take away the win from Aaron Sorkin. I mean, I see uh, I see four great films here that, uh, you know, have their their number of supporters, but, I mean, when you look at it, Winter's Bone is a small movie, great movie, but a small movie. Toy Story 3 is animated, uh, and then 127 Hours and True Grit are both worthy contenders, but those nominees have Oscars. Well, I just wonder when we're going to reach a point where Pixar breaks the mold Instead of getting nominated for these awards, it's finally going to win something outside of animated feature or a musical category when it's actually going to finally win screenplay or finally win best picture. I don't think it's going to be this year, but I, I, I do wonder when that's going to happen. And some people are even starting to make, make claims that How to Train Your Dragon could steal best animated feature from Toy Story 3, but I think those are idiotic claims. Yeah, that's dumb. Toy Story 3's got that in the bag. But yeah, you know, I, I don't know when it's going to happen. For Pixar, because it didn't happen with. Well, obviously we didn't have the ten best picture nominees, but but you would think that so far their strongest chance would have been in 2008 with Wally, uh, and then last year with Up. Uh, it's sort of a oddly weak year, but you know I, I don't know. Toy Story three is a great movie, but it's got kind of a crowded category to contend with. And it does. Well, we have offered picks for best picture, so I guess that's. Yeah, such as those are. Yeah, um, I guess I've been kind of avoiding it. Are we going with the King's Speech? I mean, is it is it going to win? Yeah, I really think so. Yeah, it is. I, I think it will. And, and, you know, I'm not sold on David Fincher winning Best Director either because of how infrequently the split seems to happen. It seems like it would be even more uncommon with, with ten Best Picture nominees. But only five Best Director nominees, you know, it, it just seems like those five films that are nominated in, in Best Director are sort of the real Best Picture nominees we get down to it, and the other five. 
So if we if we limit our contenders to the fighter, to the King's Speech, the Social Network, True Grit, and to Black Swan, yeah, I, I you know it's it's difficult to, to call anything but the King's Speech at this point, given its its guild domination. However, this is one scenario that I'm willing to entertain because it is so unusual that the critics completely went for the Social Network almost entirely of a piece, mm-hmm. and the guilds completely went for the King's speech. There is no telling what could happen when you get into the entire membership of the Academy. Mm-hmm. My thought is that the King's speech pretty much has it locked mm-hmm. at this point, just because the King's speech is warmer, it's debatably more accessible to an older crowd who might not know what that Facebook thing is, uh, especially Hollywood actors like the old guard Hollywood actors who are, who are sort of the, the stodgy Academy standby voters, but it is conceivable that the Academy who just mailed their final ballots this week could vote in response to the guild nom- domination mm-hmm. and go back to the king to, to the social network almost as if they were backlashing as we talked about earlier. Well, we, because the social network is, I think, suffering from this reputation now as this very cold and distant movie and you talk about King's speech being warm, fuzzy, and more accessible. I don't think the social network is necessarily not accessible. No, I don't either. Because, I mean, you look back, and again, we've had discussions through Twitter, but you look back and we see something like No Country for Old Men winning Best Picture up against a very warm and fuzzy and well-liked and well-grossing film, Judah. We it's see, Judah. Well, it's Judah. It wasn't, it wasn't a realistic contender, but I'm just saying you have probably the bleakest movie of all time winning Best Picture, and the film that was going to be, I guess, considered the second-place finisher there could have even been bleaker than that, and there will be blood. But then you have, again, Million Dollar Baby. Uh, we're looking at other films that have won Best Picture throughout the years. I'm trying to think of them off the top of my head, but uh, The Hurt Locker is not exactly warm and fuzzy. Well, okay, yeah. Here, here's the thing about this. Million Dollar Baby, for its depressing nature, is sentimental. And it tugs on the heartstrings, you know. It's 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 old-fashioned melodrama of sorts. I'll give you the fact that No Country for Old Men and The Hurt Locker, and maybe even The Departed to a certain degree, are grittier. They are, I guess, more no-holds-barred than your typical Academy movie. I put that in quotes. But my argument there is that this, these are kind of flukes. Uh, I, I can't really account for why The Hurt Locker won last year over Avatar or any of the other nominees, other than there is a thought that after Crash won Best Picture, the Academy sort of collectively was like, oh man, this doesn't look good for us. Maybe we should start making better choices. I don't think that happened. But, I mean, it, it, it kind of looks funny when you look at, you know, you have in a row Chicago, The Lord of the Rings, the last one brings maybe Million Dollar Baby didn't crash, and then all of a sudden, The Departed, No Country for Old Men, Slumdog Millionaire, and The Hurt Locker. There's a, there's a divide there almost in 2005 and 2006. But it seems like they're reverting back to their old ways this year for some reason, or they just honestly like the King's speech more, which well, I can't really begrudge them that. It, for many reasons, this reminds me a lot of 1998. It really does. Yeah. And that was when you had this British, very much lighthearted, semi-historical dramedy, Shakespeare in Love, which happened to be the, the man in its corner was Miramax Maestro himself, Harvey Weinstein, with co-stars Colin Firth and Jeffrey Rush. Exactly. And it swooped in and, and beat the maybe colder and more distant and much more violent. 
ribald and sentimental about the opening sequence of Saving Private Run. The, the old man in the cemetery? No, I'm saying the, the opening. You know what I'm talking about. Right. Right. I don't, you, know, you Saving Private Ryan haters. I don't understand. You don't hear it. You and I, 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 really, I really, I, I do, I like that movie, but you know what? There is no getting around the fact that that is, let's say, manipulative. Do you hate your country? <laughs> do you hate your country? It sounds like it to me. You have no respect for veterans, what they did for the United I, States. I love the thin red line, though. That would have been my pick in 2008. Of course it would have been. Saving Private Ryan was the winner that year. It was going to win. Harvey Weinstein mounted a campaign, and as impressive as it was, he stole the Oscar from Saving Private Ryan. I'm sorry. And look, you can blame Saving Private Ryan for not mounting a strong enough campaign and just assuming that it was going to win the Oscar. And Harvey, in an interview on Deadline.com, even claims that Saving Private Ryan, the the studio outspended Shakespeare in Love. There's no way it, it could not have. And that's the case this year, too, where I think that this is really going to come down to stories afterwards saying Harvey Weinstein won the Oscar for the King's Speech. And that's basically what's happening right now. He's been all over the place. He has been screening this thing like a madman and campaigning his butt off. And he's really kind of been hitting out against Social Network, too, in this interview that I encourage people to read. He sort of gets into this argument of, what's relevant and people voting for what's relevant in terms of the movie season and he, he I think he goes as far as to say don't tell me what's relevant King's Speech is relevant because it's a historical film True Grit don't tell me True Grit's not relevant and he's basically taking a shot at the social network in terms of the Facebook subject matter being relevant to today's culture and today's generation of film goers and perhaps like you said these older academy members won't vote for it but I think that what you have to associate with it other than Facebook and the movie's not really even about the social network that is Facebook you have to associate David Fincher with it and Aaron Sorkin and these people who are respected within the industry and poured themselves into making what is considered the best film of the year by the majority of the critics and a lot of other people out there so we'll see what happens, but I think that what bothers me about this is not so much that the King's Speech, a great film, is going to win Best Picture. It's how it's going to win Best Picture, and that's winning people over through conversation and argument and not winning people over with the actual art. I, yeah, I, I'm not as convinced that the Harvey Weinstein, whose stature has slipped somewhat lately, is going to be the primary architect behind this. I mean, I don't think there's, there's any doubt that he's out there hustling. Uh, like a madman, but I really honestly think that when, it, when you put the social network and you put the King's Speech in front of, let's say, Academy Award voter Ernest Borgnine, there's, I don't think there's any question what he's going to respond to more. Just by True Grit? Well, yeah, <laughs> that's what I would hope. But uh, if, we, if we're narrowing it down to those two, which we are, because those are the realistic contenders here. The Wild Bunch, man. Yeah, yeah. So, True Grit. It's going to win Best Picture. There it is. We're done. It's we're Ernest Borgnine. We'll take one more break and return with our DVD picks. Stick around. There had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. We are back here on Aspect Radio now, ready to talk about what's new on DVD this week. Corey with some more obscure Oscar nominees and other great movies of 2010 now seeing the light of day on DVD. Is there anything that we should look for this week in particular? Well, currently, in release on DVD and Blu-ray is one of my favorite movies of 2010. Mark Romanek's Never Let Me Go. I think I talked a little bit more about that two weeks ago on our Best of uh, 2010 
show, but suffice it to say, it's a really moving quasi-science fiction film that uh, I really highly recommend. Also out on DVD and Blu-ray, currently Matt Reeves' remake of the 2008 Swedish vampire film, Let the Right One In. This one's called Let Me In. Uh, and I think I underrated this on first viewing, Then I, I, I was watching it at home, and uh, I think it is at least as good as the original, because there are some great performances in this movie from the two young leads, uh, Chloe Grace Moretz and uh, Cody Smith McPhee from The Road, and also from uh, reliable character actors like Richard Jenkins. And uh, it's, it's, a really, it's a really terrific little horror movie that I think uh, fans of the original will respect for, as I guess, sort of uh, retaining the, uh, the spirit, not dumbing it down for American audiences. On DVD and Blu-ray on Tuesday, a lot of releases this week, uh, that um, most of which are bad. You know, I'm not even going to sugarcoat that. A lot of which I haven't seen yet, but I'm gonna, I, I think I can safely say that I'm not going to be recommending life as we know it, barring, I don't know, some exceptional circumstances. But I did like uh, the little movie, uh, It's Kind of a Funny Story, which comes out on DVD and Blu-ray on Tuesday. Most notable, I think, for uh, sort of more dramatic supporting turn from Zach Galifianakis, um, but also it, it's from the directors of uh, Half Nelson and Sugar, two really great independent movies. So it, it's, it, I guess it's a, a teenage quirky romantic comedy of sorts, but it's one that's done with a lot more intelligence than they usually are. I've been catching up on Between Two Ferns with yeah. Zach Galifianakis. I hadn't seen two of them. I watched them the other night and just laughed my head off. So, yeah, it's great stuff. Yeah, it's it great stuff. He is great. And uh, I think fans of his would be would do well to check him out in this where he's actually stretching those dramatic muscles a little bit. But that's what I've got about currently released. Okay, well, sticking with, I guess, the Oscar theme here, I'll, I'll throw out one recommendation. A film that I decided to revisit this past week when I had no cable or internet in my new home. I had to just watch DVDs over and over and over. I ended up watching a lot of mainstream fare that I hadn't seen yet, I hadn't seen in the theaters, and we'll, we'll not really talk about that, but one, one out of my own collection that I, I decided to revisit was from 2005, Steven Spielberg's film Munich, and I hadn't seen it since maybe the first time I saw it in the theater, and I had a strong reaction to it, I did like it, but there were some things about it that I, I felt like I remembered that I wasn't crazy about, but the film is a monumental technical achievement, it's incredibly well-edited, well-conceived, fact that they made it as fast as they did in time for the Oscar season, and it wound up getting a Best Picture nomination, deservedly so. This is an incredible just spy picture. You could say it's very fully moving. It has a lot of uh, poignant things to say about fighting violence with violence. It has commentary, I guess, not as much so on what occurred back in, the 19, in, in 1972, but more so on the country's response during 9-11, or, or the response to 9-11, and I think that's mainly what Spielberg's going for. It's no secret at this point, but it, it does have some pretty interesting things to say about that, and aside from the themes of the film, the performances are great, the action is incredible, it's incredibly tense, and, it, you know, some of those things that stuck with me before kind of did, like, you know, what has become this horribly cliched staple in film scoring, the Middle Eastern lady wailing in the background, you know what I'm talking about on certain scores. I think Gladiator is sort of what started the trend, but when the company logo comes up and she's already wailing at that point, your eyes start to roll back into your head. But then there's a flashback sequence towards the end of the film that sort of gains some notoriety 
I guess, and I won't be specific about it, but I think that still sort of was what it's it was. a little misguided. Yeah, it? a little bit, but Munich is a great movie. No, I love it. It had a well-deserved Best Picture nomination, for sure. So that's my recommendation. It's, it's definitely worth revisiting, and it's easily, prob- it's probably Steven Spielberg's best movie of that decade, yeah. I would say. Yeah. I think it's outstanding. Well, uh, it's, let's say AI. And you're a Minority Report fan, too, right? Yeah, I love Minority Report. Okay. I, I'd probably put this slightly over Minority Report. All right. Well, opening nationwide and in Tuscaloosa at the Top Hollywood 16 this week, Sanctum, somehow produced by James Cameron. The roommate with Leighton Meester and her twin sister, Minka Kelly. Best Picture nominees, The King's Speech, True Grit, and Black Swan remain at the Cobb as well, so those might be better bets if you haven't seen them yet. You can email uh, any of your feedback to 90.7movies at gmail.com. Find us at twitter.com slash aspectradio or facebook.com slash aspectradio. You can download this and other episodes of the show on our blog at aspectradio.tumblr.com. We'll also post the podcast on Twitter and Facebook. And as always, check us out on AL.com. Just scroll down the homepage to find us in the entertainment section on Monday or search Aspect Radio. Do not forget to visit our friend Mascalici's website, filmnerds.com. There right now you will find a moving tribute to late composer John Barry, the great John Barry. And that is written by my brother Graham, who singles out his favorite Barry pieces from several films. And you're also going to find a Ben Stark write-up about the recent breakup of The White Stripes, a band that he says inspired his own creative process as a filmmaker. It's a really good read, so do check it out. And Corey, I don't know if you're a big fan of The White Stripes, but what was your reaction to their breakup? To be honest, I kind of... uh, thought that they already had. A lot of people have that reaction. A lot of people have been saying that this week, and I'm not sure. I mean, I guess that's just people who are distant fans, I guess, of the White Stripes have that because they haven't put something out in a while, and there was news that their tour ended early because of Meg White's anxiety problems. And Jack White's been doing so many, like, solo projects and alternate projects. I mean, this, this seemed like a, a matter of time if it hadn't already happened. It's a shame. It really is because they are one of my favorite bands of all time. I'm a huge fan. I posted top ten favorite White Stripes songs list in response to this and I'm very sad to hear this and I know that this isn't a music talk show but again like Ben says they're a great fan of films and there are a couple of concert films or documentaries that you can find about them. One under Blackpool Lights which is just a concert movie which is really good. It's shot in Super 8 millimeter and you can also find Under Great White Northern Lights which is more of a documentary. Yeah I saw that. Yeah it's about their Canadian tour where they hit every province in Canada. It's a good, it's a good watch especially if you're a big White Stripes fan. And something I'll also encourage people to check out, Corey, Matt, Stelici, and I participated in the Sidewalk Salon this past week where we talked about the best films of 2010 and the Oscars and a few other things with good people from the Alabama Moving Image Association and uh, a lot of people who came out to the restaurant Rojo in Birmingham and Highland Park. It was a really good time. We got to uh, meet a couple of Birmingham critics that I hadn't met before, some good guys had a lot of interesting things to say, and you can hear that at filmnerds.com slash blog, and we've reposted it on our blog, too, so be sure to check that out. It's a really, it's a fun conversation. Yeah, that was a fun night. It was, and we, we appreciate uh, the folks at Sidewalk for inviting us. We had a great time, and we, we'd love to do it again sometime. And you might not know, but today is our final show on the 90.7 Airwaves. We really wish to extend our many, many thanks to WVUA station manager Claire Brucker, program director Chris Dodson, production director Cliff Kyle, and our friend Brandon Andrews for their support and contributions to the show. We are incredibly grateful 
many people in 90.7's hospitality and encouragement, and we hope to collaborate with them again in the very near future. And we will continue to podcast those, so look for updates possibly as soon as this week. We will definitely keep you posted. But until next week, I'm Ben Flanagan. And I'm Corey Kraft, and this is Aspect Radio. Thanks for listening. Oh, what do you feel like doing tonight? I don't know, Edge. What do you feel like doing? We're back to that, huh?